If you have a Bible, uh, please uh, turn with me now uh, to your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. And you'll find the sermon scripture this morning in Genesis 12, verses 4 through 9. Genesis 12, 4 through 9. Would you please stand with me now for uh, the reading of this, God's holy, inerrant, uh, and inspired word. Hear now, congregation, the word of the Lord. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people whom they had acquired in Haran, and they departed to go to the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abraham passed through the land into the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree of Moreh, And the Canaanites were then in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel, and he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed going on still toward the south. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Shall we pray? Again, our Father and our God, uh, we thank you for your holy word, and we pray earnestly now with all of our hearts as one congregation of Jesus Christ, that you would send forth your spirit to every heart, that you would show us what it is indeed to be a Christian and to have faith in the Savior you have given And show us what is the Christian life to which we are called. Indeed, be our God and have us, we pray, both now and forever as your people. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Well, we know more about the life of Abraham than nearly everyone else in biblical history, except perhaps for Moses and David and Paul, and of our Lord Jesus himself. What an utterly transformative moment it was, not only for Abraham, but indeed for all of human history, when God spoke to this man and called him, and he left his home in Ur and then in Haran and journeyed to Canaan. And Abram's call, as we have already observed together last Lord's Day, was an example of divine election eternal, divine, sovereign election. Abraham was called by God because of sovereign grace alone and for no other reason. It pleased God to call him. 
in the same way that it pleased God to call you, dear child of God, and every other Christian out of the misery and death of their sin, he calls us. He was a man like any other until God called him. His past held no promise of future greatness, but by the grace of God, he became one of the two or three most consequential men ever to live in the history of the world. He is, as we call him, the great patriarch, the great father of our faith, of biblical history, the great exemplar of faith and of salvation by faith. He will be called the friend of God. He will be called the father of all those who believe in Jesus Christ. And our Lord Jesus, in a particularly striking statement in John's gospel, said that Abraham was a believer in him already in his own lifetime, 2,000 years before the Lord came into the world, saying, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He did see it and was glad. And Paul will use Abraham's life and his story as a crowning demonstration that men are made right with God by faith in Christ alone. The author of Hebrews will use Abraham as an example of what it means to live by faith. And so if one wishes to understand what saving faith looks like in the life of a believer, the Bible tells you, look to Abraham and you will see. This is what a true believer, a friend of God, looks like. And indeed, throughout the remainder of the Bible, God will refer to himself many times as simply the God of Abraham. What does that mean, beloved? But that God is not ashamed to call himself Abraham's God. The God of the one who walked not perfectly but in faith, which means that he trusted not in himself, but depended on the grace and power of God's supernatural work in the world and in his life. And we've already seen, have we not, that when God called Abraham, he called him to leave everything behind that was most meaningful to him. Everything that he had ever known, his country, his relatives, his family of origin, his own nuclear family, his father's house. And so it was that when God calls a man to follow him, he bids him to die to his former life, to leave everything, to take up his cross, that he might follow the Lord. And in leaving everything, Abraham was also separating from those polluting and corrupting influences of his native land, and of his family, those powerful forces that threatened pure spiritual devotion to the Lord. And so Abraham left, not even knowing where he was going. Can you imagine it, dear friend? He left in obedience to the Lord to go to the place that God would show him. God did not tell him ahead of time. Abraham was to trust God every step of the way to listen to his voice as it came to him and walk simply and purely 
by faith. Walk with me, Abraham. It is as if God is saying, and I will show you in proper time where it is that you should go. John Calvin has summarized the entire episode in this way. Quote, I command you to go forth with closed eyes until having renounced your country, you shall have given yourself wholly to me. End quote. And so not just of faith then, but of discipleship is Abraham the great exemplar throughout the Bible and for us in Christian experience. Five times then in verses 2 and 3, we find the word bless. It had occurred only five times in all of chapters 1 through 11. But here five times in two verses. We've turned a corner in the Bible. The first portion of Genesis deals largely with the rapid and pervasive spread of sin and the consequence of sin, which is death. But here God is not threatening the human race with a curse, but promising a blessing to Abraham and to his descendants. Though married to a barren woman, Abram will be made by God into a great nation. A great name will be given to him. He will be blessed by God in order that he might be a blessing. And because Abraham is God's chosen vessel of blessing for the whole world, God promises to protect him by blessing the ones who bless him and by cursing those who curse him. Abraham, God says, I want you to know something. You can't possibly comprehend the full implications of this. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Genesis 12.3. What an astounding promise. The full reality will only be known in the revelation of Jesus Christ and the giving of his great commission to preach the gospel to all nations. And so Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Obedience. God spoke. Abraham obeyed. As Noah before him, when he built the ark at God's command, Abraham will again obey the Lord. In chapter 22, taking Isaac, his beloved son, to Mount Moriah, the Lord speaks, the Lord commands, his servant obeys. Now, you know the story perhaps well enough to know that he does not obey perfectly. Only the Lord Jesus obeys the Father perfectly, which is why he and not Abraham is our Savior. But beloved, we are not to miss that when God spoke, verse 4, Abraham departed as the Lord had said. Let it be to me according to your word. This is the obedience of faith. He left Haran at the age of 75 years. We know nothing about the first 75 years of his life. What matters is his life after the Lord called him. Some people are ready to phone it in at the age of 75. He was just getting started. 
But he did not make this great, arduous journey alone, did he? Abraham had become a man of substantial wealth. He had possessions. And apparently he had spent enough time in Haran to gain a number of people, verse 5, to his household. Some think these were household servants. Some of the ancient Jewish rabbis thought these souls were converts. These were men won over to Yahweh by Abraham's influence. That Abraham spread wherever he went the sweet scent or odor of faith. And that these people were drawn to God, they say. And Lot volunteered to go with him. Lot was Abraham's nephew the son of Abraham's now deceased brother. It has been suggested, and it is quite possible, I think, that Abraham, in effect, adopted Lot when he took him on his journey. It is also quite possible that others were offered the opportunity to come. But Lot accepted the offer. When my mother's uncle... Uh, this was in 1960, uh, when my mother's uncle came back to the little Yugoslavian village where my mother was raised, he offered to sponsor someone to come to America. And only my mother uh, volunteered. I've often thought back on that, why she would have done that, uh, how different our family would have been if she hadn't come. I wouldn't be here, I guess we might say. These are remarkable moments, aren't they? Decisions like these in family histories. And we will learn much about Lot, but we're not told why he would have come. He left everything, too, behind. It's likely that he loved his uncle and respected Abram. And it's not out of the question that faith was beginning to stir. Sometimes God calls multiple members of the same family out of darkness around the same time. He did that in my family 30 years ago. But this is a massively important moment for Lot. It's a watershed in his life, too. It is for him also a turning point. When my mother left Yugoslavia 56 years ago, she was coming because it was the land of opportunity and freedom. Because she thought every man in America looked like uh, Cary Grant and Tony Curtis from the movies. And because she thought that the Golden Gate Bridge was made out of gold. But why did she really leave? Think about God's providence. She endured World War II from 1939 to 1945. The effects on her country were profound. Her country was taken over by the communists, and her father fled 
so as not to serve in the communist army. He came back an angry, violent alcoholic. She endured a very difficult divorce and breakup of our family when the children were young. But she would tell you this, no experience that I ever had, no matter how difficult, even deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as coming to know Jesus Christ. That's why she came to America. Isn't that stunning? Not for a land of freedom and opportunity, but because here she would meet the Lord Jesus and be saved. And so Lot came. Maybe faith stirred in his heart at this time. And of course, Sarai, Sarah, Abraham's wife, came as well. Abraham did not make this great journey, nor did he step out in faith without his wife at his side. His closest friend, his constant companion, his helper, Genesis 2, corresponding to him. Sarai was there to comfort, to encourage him, perhaps at times to question and to wonder, what does all of this really mean? Why would we leave the security and stability and familiarity of everything that we have ever known and strike out in this vast wilderness, this great unknown, to follow this call from God? We're not given the luxury, are we, of knowing her thoughts? Was she filled with fear? Was she reluctant to go? Did she think Abraham was crazy? She would not have been the first nor the last wife to think such thoughts. Or was there a certain excitement, a fresh start perhaps? Perhaps the Lord will bless us in the future as he has not seemed to do so in the past. Perhaps there will be children for us in the place where the Lord is leading us to go. But she's there, is she not? She's with him and must have been a source of inestimable comfort to him to share the journey and to walk side by side, to lay down next to him at night, to keep him warm, to give him strength, to keep him going. Our confession of faith reminds us that marriage was ordained, first of all, it's the first thing mentioned, for the mutual help of husband and wife. A wife of noble character, who can find? She's worth far more than rubies, Proverbs 31 reminds us. He who finds a wife finds a good thing, and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 18.22 Rejoice in the wife of your youth. So says Proverbs 5.18 But marriage was designed by God to be a loving, committed, permanent, lifelong bond between a husband and wife. And even then, it is a picture of Christ and the church, of the unity and love that exists between God and his people. 
And so Abraham, when he left everything to follow the call of God, did not do so alone. But he had his dear wife by his side. She will be a very important part of the story. Dear friends, not all marry well. Some marry poorly. Some Christians marry unbelievers. Some marry people of deficient character. Some marriages begin well. And then through worry and distraction and sin, they turn sour. Some marry and the marriage takes away from rather than supports Christian faith and discipleship. But what a blessing beyond description is the marriage that redounds to God's glory and that builds up the faith of both partners. It is a blessing to the world, to the children that they bear. Now, theirs was not a perfect marriage. Theirs was not a perfect family. There is no such thing. But Abraham and Sarah had one another. They loved one another. And he did not undertake this journey without his bride, nor she without him. And having now come to Canaan, at the time, as the author mentions, when the Canaanites were still in the land, how important will that be in Bible history? Passing through Shechem, Abraham came to a particular terebinth tree. Apparently, it's a tree from the cashew family that in the ancient world was a source of turpentine. To the Mesopotamians, trees were signs of fertility. They were often places of worship. This is one reason why no trees were to be allowed in the temple precincts in Jerusalem. Abraham may have still been worshiping according to the forms of his time, but the content of that worship had now radically changed. And then the Lord appeared to Abram, we're not told how, promising to him, to your descendants I will give this land. And at that time, there were great obstacles to the fulfilling of this promise, not the least of which is that the place was overrun with Canaanites. And notice that after hearing this promise and perhaps being overwhelmed by what it all meant, by the seeming impossibility of it all, Abraham there built an altar to the Lord as Noah had before him. He builds an altar to the Lord and we read he called on the name of the Lord. This was an act of worship, and this was an act of faith. We've seen that to build an altar and to make sacrifices and offerings to the Lord was a way of saying that everything I have and everything I am is wholly given over to the Lord. What is meant by this act is an act of total surrender and of holy devotion and of personal consecration. This was a way for Abraham to say, Lord, I am yours, everything. My life, my possessions, my family, my present, my future. In every way, O Lord, my life belongs to you. 
I'm holding nothing back. Make me wholly thine. Dear friends, it's no different from our worship. It's no different from our worship this morning and the reason we are here. Paul says in Romans 12 that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. And that this is our reasonable act of worship in view of God's mercy to us in Jesus Christ. That's the logic of the gospel. What God has done for us by his grace in Jesus Christ is so great and so wonderful, so profound, so deeply reaching to the very heart of us that we in turn are prepared now to offer back to the Lord our very selves and everything that we are as an act of worship and sacrifice to him. Now God too, most important of all, was with Abraham. And Abraham did not forget him. He worshiped. He sacrificed. He offered under these offerings his very self and his whole being to the Lord. And he called on the name of the Lord. And it was faith-filled. Abraham must have been able to see that he himself could never accomplish these promises, but that the Lord himself would have to do it. How hard was that for Israel to learn that lesson? And how hard is it for us to learn this lesson? But God was making a great promise, a promise that only he could fulfill. And this was Abraham's way of saying, Lord, if this is to be done, you must do it. And you alone It's faith-filled worship. Worship that says, O Lord, I depend on your supernatural grace and power. That is faith in the Bible from first to last, from Abraham to us. Not what man can do, but what God in Christ has already done. Now finally, I don't want to finish this section without observing with you verse 8 that as Abraham went about the land, he would pitch his tent. Did you notice that? He pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai uh, on the east. He camped. He was a nomad. He lived the tent life. He followed the Lord not knowing where he was going. And the only suitable life for that is the tent life. He traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles over vast, unfamiliar territory. He was a man on a journey, going somewhere. He didn't settle down in one place too long. He was a pilgrim, a stranger and a sojourner in the land. Listen, dear friend, the Bible makes a great point of this. By faith, 
Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews 11, uh, 8 through 10. You see the point? Though God had made to him these very great and precious promises, Abraham lived nevertheless as a stranger in the world and as a dweller in a foreign country. For here we have no lasting home. We sang about Jerusalem, the golden, this morning. Here we have no permanent citizenship. He dwelled in tents because he was walking by faith and waiting in faith and looking with anticipation to the city, the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the city of the living God, the only city with true lasting foundations whose builder and maker is God himself. He lived and dwelled in tents because he was a citizen of heaven. And that was his true home. Are you living uh, the tent life? Are you? Or are you living the settled life? How much we love our homes and our properties and our possessions our creature comforts, our country, and our comfortable way of life. But have we come to love it so much that we forget where our true citizenship lies? Are you living the tent life? Can you uproot at any moment if God calls, if he calls you home? Or are you holding on so tightly to the things of this world that you're not willing to let them go or to live without them? One of my all-time favorite songs, uh, I know Johnny Cash sang it, but I don't like the Johnny Cash version. Uh, I like the version by Eva Cassidy, and you should listen to it. I am a poor, wayfaring stranger, a journeying through this world below. There's no sickness, no toil, no danger in that bright land to which I go. I'm going there to see my father. I'm going there. No more to Rome. I'm just going over Jordan. I'm just going home. Beloved, isn't that good to remember this election season? Here we have no lasting city. Thank the Lord this is not our truest citizenship. Are you a tent dweller? 
Are you living the tent life? Loosen your grip, dear friend. Very soon your Savior will appear and call you home. You are bound for that bright land above. Let's pray. Father in heaven, write your eternal truth on our hearts and that we may ever live unto you, walk by faith, and seek our true eternal home. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.